For the Life of the World is a production of the Yale Center for Faith and Culture. For more information, visit faith.yale.edu. People are feeling our guy, our shelter from shame is being attacked by the shamers. And I think that liberals, uh, coastal people in cities need to get out of their bubble to get a sense of how their views are received. And once that has happened, then we can create a a nation of, of shaming shelters within which, under which, we can begin to talk about our differences. This is For the Life of the World, a podcast about seeking and living a life worthy of our humanity. I'm Evan Rosa with the Yale Center for Faith and Culture. How do we understand each other's political lives? It's all too easy to depend on the consistent narratives of bafflement at the political stranger. How could you possibly have voted for fill in the blank? I have no idea how you could support you know who. Maybe to stay baffled is a defense mechanism. It keeps the stranger strange. If you rely consistently on your inability to fathom another's behavior or reasons or motivations or the fears that underlie them all, maybe that helps you cope a little better. Our guest on the show today turned off all of her alarm systems, set aside the narrative of confusion and bafflement, and set out to learn about the political other. When around 10 years ago, she began regular visits to Lake Charles, Louisiana, a working class Tea Party stronghold that followed suit with Trump support in 2016. Visiting from Berkeley, California, she befriended people in Lake Charles who were suspicious of the government, struggling for their own economic flourishing, feeling the whole time that they were being cut in line, that they were unseen, unrecognized, dishonored and alienated in a hidden social class war. Sociologist Arlie Hochschild is professor emerita in sociology at the University of California, Berkeley, and author of Strangers in Their Own Land, Anger and Mourning on the American Right, a book that was a finalist for the National Book Award in 2016. In this episode, I ask Arlie about her experience of intentionally identifying her own ideological bubble, forging out to scale a wall of division, bafflement and hostility to find empathy, turning off her political and moral alarms and attuning her mind to hear the desires that inform the deep story of her friends in Louisiana. We discuss political division, resentment and alienation, how the Trump presidency and subsequent 2020 loss to Biden has continued to make strangers in their own land. And she explains the emotional roots of political beliefs and tribalism, especially those held by her conservative friends, the blind spots of progressive views of conservatives, and finally, curiosity, humility, emotion management, and putting oneself in perspective. Thanks for listening. Hello, Arlie. Thank you for joining us on For the Life of the World. You have been in such a unique position over the last several years, exploring the emotional roots of 
a very complex and fraught political narrative in our country. I wonder if if you could begin by just telling us a little bit about the problem as you saw it, what motivated you to begin investigating political division and the emotions that underlie politics? Well, it's lovely to be talking with you, Evan, and sharing a uh, odyssey uh, with you that began in 2011. I was sitting in my office, uh, the fourth floor of Barrows Hall uh, at UC Berkeley, uh, in a um, a blue town, blue state, uh, when uh, I was uh, reading more and more about the growth of the Tea Party movement uh, in the country, and um, it, I was thinking of uh, a lot of social problems that called for. Uh, community solutions, but also government solutions. And here was a Tea Party movement that was saying the government is more of a problem than a solution. We don't believe in it. We want to almost entirely dismantle it. I didn't know anyone who who held these beliefs. And I realized that I was in a political bubble and in a um, a a a internet bubble because we know our computers uh, are set up to give us ourselves back again. I was in a media bubble already in uh, 2011. So I decided to get out of my bubble, go to an equal and opposite bubble uh, where the Tea Party was the strongest. And that was in the South, in the Deep South. And I, uh, that's where I went and landed. And that was, that was Louisiana. Correct? That was least Louisiana. And I carried with me this um, red state paradox that across the country, why was it that it was the poorest states, the states with the most disrupted families, the worst education, the worst health care, the most road accidents, uh, the worst pollution, uh, the lowest life expectancies were also those states that received more money from the federal government in aid than they gave to it in tax dollars and reviled the federal government, distrusted, wanted to dismantle. And if you have those problems, uh, the paradox is, why wouldn't you want to, uh, why wouldn't you be grateful for federal aid and in, in, in uh, fixing those problems. So that's the paradox. Mm-hmm. And I discovered that Louisiana was um, an exaggerated version of the red state paradox, second poorest state in the whole country. 44% of its uh, state budget came from the federal government, had all those troubling rates, and was very overwhelmingly... Um, uh, Tea Party, very conservative Republican Tea Party. So you're observing a kind of um, inconsistency, or maybe maybe something like a like a paradox. Yeah. The, the the idiom that comes to mind is that that they bite the hand that feeds them, right? But really, there's so much to this story, and the fact is, what you began to uncover is that the bewilderment caused by observing an inconsistency or a paradox like that, it really 
in order to understand it, you had to move beyond uh, the 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 surface of the story or the surface appearance of inconsistency, right? That's right. And I had to do something to myself hmm. uh, before getting to know them. Well, well, yeah, tell, say more, say more. Yeah, the thing I had to do to myself was uh, relax, take <laughs> off um, my moral and political alarm system mm -hmm. and permit myself a great deal of personal curiosity about mm -hmm. the humanity of the people with whom I knew I would um, strongly disagree. And so that's the thing I had to do to myself. Yes. It was a very important experience. It opened up a world to me. Um, it helped me realize what people I didn't know who lived in a different region, different social class, different religious background, um, how they felt. It was wondrous. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, it, in a way, as I've come to think of it, created a kind of shame shelter um, mm -hmm. underneath which we could really get to know uh, one another and relate humanly so that, not so that we agreed, but so that we could disagree in a, in a good way, in a way that did not rupture bonds. Yeah. That's a very evocative phrase, a shame shelter. It's just recently occurred to me. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, it's, it's beautiful because it, it, it seems like it's a, uh, I mean, a nut to extend to a different metaphor. It's kind of, it just creates a harbor for a relationship, right? Um, That's right. Free from um, the, the kinds of judgments that need to be made at, a, at the level of discussing policy, need to be made at the level of of reflection and theory and ideas, but perhaps those judgments don't need to make it so far as just simply being with a person. And so very quickly here, we're like jumping to, and I want to dwell a little bit more on this, how, how it feels, right? The, the feelings behind politics, as opposed to merely the ideas behind politics. Right. I'll give you an example of how it was uh, to jump over what I came to think of as an empathy bridge, that is to cross that bridge. Mm. Um, when I encountered uh, people during my five years of um, hanging out and being with um, people um, who lived in a different bubble and who lived indeed in a different truth, uh, a different sense of what was... Uh, uh, what was true. Yeah. Uh, so I was attending meetings of the Republican women of Southwest Louisiana as the mm. guest of uh, a, uh, a Tea Party uh, enthusiast. And mm. incidentally, everyone I came to know, I interviewed over 100 people, really came to know uh, a much smaller group uh, and but everyone I interviewed uh, later became very strong Trump supporters. So I found myself really yeah. there in Lake Charles, Louisiana, southern part of 
the state and petrochemical center of yeah. development, uh, talking to pipe fitters, blue collar white uh, yeah. uh, people, that uh, I was really at Trump's base. So I'm going to Republican women of Southwest Louisiana meetings as a guest, uh, very <laughs> a mm -hmm. scrappy, wonderful person. She and I had a kind of a joking relationship. She'd yeah. say, well, I, I'm going to convert you. <laughs> well, that'll be pretty hard, you know, back and forth. Uh, so she took me around, took, took me into her life. And, um, her life centered around this particular organization. They had monthly meetings. She took me there. She introduced me to people. Well, this is uh, Arlie's. Uh, she comes, you know, she's born in the North. She's living in the West. And she's writing a book. And Berkeley, California, you know, she's on the yeah. other side. And um, people were very polite and friendly. Uh, so I'm sitting around a table of eight women. And one of them... Uh, said, I love Rush Limbaugh, you know, the conservative yeah. uh, uh, radio uh, dominates the daytime radio waves nationwide yeah. and was just given a prize by Donald Trump. Anyway, she loved him. I, and I thought to myself, oh, <laughs> oh, my God. And then I thought, oh. I would like to understand you. you know, so yeah. a little kind of a moment of uh, transition. And, you know, could we meet for sweet teas sometime this week? I'd love to understand more about your feelings. Yeah. And she said, sure. So next day we're having sweet teas uh, together. And I yeah. asked her, what is it that you love about? Rush Limbaugh, she who turns out to be a fantastic gospel singer at a Pentecostal mm. megachurch. Her mm. husband is the minister. And uh, she said, oh, he's my dear heart. He, uh, because he hates feminazis, she says. Uh, and so yeah. I ask her, well, what's a feminazi? Well, it's a mean, hard cold woman who uh, believes men should wash the dishes and not open doors of cars and so on. So I'm listening and um, hoping she hasn't read a book I wrote some time ago called The Sex Shift. That's right, which <laughs> about, is about just those issues. About husbands of uh, women who work full-time outside the home yeah. and sharing at home is a good thing to do. Anyway, um, <laughs> So, but she hadn't. So, you know, and then um, uh, she uh, says, you know, I, I like fixing my husband's uh, platter and I, I don't sit down till he's, he's, uh, he's there eating. Mm -hmm. And then um, she goes on to environmental wackos, you know, these people that are worship animals instead of people, as she understood it, really animists. Um, and then she interrupted herself and said, you know, I know you have told me that you don't agree with me. Uh, so, but I see you listening to me in an open way. Is that hard for you to do? She yeah. asks. And I think, wow, she's watching me. 
And then I say, not at all. You know, I have my alarm system off. I have my beliefs, but uh, they're not important here. And what's important here is that I'm understanding you. And I feel more grateful than you know that you're giving me time and giving me um, the opportunity to get to know you. And she then said, alarm system off. Oh, I do that too. I do it with uh, parishioners at the church. I do it with my kids if they're having a tantrum or something. I, I just try and figure out what's going on with them. And then we had that in common. Right. Nothing else but that. But that's a lot. And then she told me something that illuminated the whole Rush Limbaugh story. Then. She said, actually, the real reason I like Rush Limbaugh is that he protects us against all the epithets that come out from these coastal elites and universities, uh, that we are a backward people, that we are uh, retrograde, that we're ill-educated, that we're stupid, that we're prejudiced, that we're homophobic. Uh, that uh, were sexist uh, and fat. <laughs> and uh, she said, and he protects us from that. I said, you mm. just taught me something very important that uh, I didn't know. And you needed shelter from all this shame. I, I, and that's your picture of people on the coast that all they're doing is handing out shame. Um, yeah. Wow. Thank you so much. And then she said, say, um, do you, uh, do you play cards? Which I haven't since I was 10. We <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know there's a game called Rook, which is for uh, evangelical believers because it's uh it, it's not. It's just. It has no gambling to it, but it has uh, some daring adventure to it. Anyway, so next thing I know, I'm looking up the rules of Rook on Wikipedia, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> preparing for a visit near home. So yeah. it went like that. So what's fascinating about this is um, the concept of turning off the alarm. So I wanted to spend a little bit of extended time on that because. It takes a particular kind of intention and mindset to be willing to turn off the alarm. And really what we're talking about here is healing across division, right? The opportunity for mutual understanding that, that can lead to the kind of collaboration that a healthy democracy requires mm -hmm. and the kind of peace um, that I think most people are longing for mm -hmm. and yet finding it hard to come by. And, and, and so those kinds of opportunities for common ground and being ready to turn off the alarms, it kind of raises the question, like when, if ever, should the alarm system be on when we are living in such a, a kind of fraught time? Oh, I think it definitely has to go on. Um, but we have to uh, become a very wise about uh, 
when and with whom and how we turn that alarm system on. Uh, In other words, a lot of people have a misunderstanding about empathy and uh, active listening. They think of it as weakness. They think of it as giving up in the middle of a war and uh, relinquishing your own attachment to your uh, core beliefs. And this is, of course, uh, completely um, mistaken. Uh, I think, Mm -hmm. in fact, in order to enact our deepest ideals, we need to develop uh, a really uh, carefully the capacity not only to deep listen and get where the other person is coming from, but to know when to use it and when not to use it. I think at the moment that we're in, that um, the feelings I was to discover in my five years of work that led to the book Strangers in Their Own Land, um, things have grown worse and not mm. better. and. Um, I I should back up to say that what I discovered was that people felt the federal government was uh, almost like a foreign occupying government. It was the North, and they mm. felt that even their own state of Louisiana, that the government didn't protect them uh, yeah. in, in a way it was supposed to. So government officials um, uh, were suspect in their mind. And that underneath that, they felt like part of a minority that was getting bypassed. And that they they held to what I came to call a deep story that is a deeply felt uh, a salient situation could be uh, it, it, it could be told like you would tell a dream in, in mm. metaphor. You take facts out of a deep story, you take a moral precepts out of a deep story. It's just what's there. And we can't Sounds do, mythological almost. It is, but we can't do politics unless we yeah. get into that mythology yeah. in a way. And we all have mythologies. We all have deep stories. But their deep story yeah. is is that um, you're waiting in line uh, as in a pilgrimage facing the American dream. You've been in that line, unmoving line, for a long time. Your feet are tired. You feel uh, entitled to move ahead. You've worked hard, been a good citizen. And then you see... Uh, in this right-leaning, right-wing, deep story, line cutters. And who were they? They would be blacks who were, for the first time in history, given access to jobs that had been reserved for whites. And you see mm-hmm. women given access to jobs that were formerly reserved for men. And then you saw uh, immigrants and refugees and environmentalists, public sector workers, all who seem to be getting ahead of you in lunch and line and putting you back. Hmm. And then another moment 
of the uh, right-wing deep story, there's Barack Obama, who seems to be uh, waving to the line cutters. And maybe he's the line cutter, too. Mm-hmm. And then you feel like you are a stranger in your own land. They are all moving ahead. You're moving back. You're not looking at the people behind you in line. You're just looking at the ones ahead between you and the American dream. And you feel suddenly like you've been cast out. You're a stranger. And then uh, comes uh, Donald Trump. I attended a primary rally in New Orleans uh, with Tea Party uh, enthusiast and uh, wow. the euphoria in this group was uh, palpable. Uh, and he had come uh, to make the other side strangers in their own land. He had come to liberate them, to uh, restore uh, the rightful line uh, uh, rules of, of, yeah. of line uh, behavior. And uh, so they were glad to be liberated from the kind of shame that I heard um, my evangelical friend express that she felt Rush Limbaugh was um, liberating her from. I saw Rush Limbaugh, of course, as the great shamer, (laughs) and uh, Mm. angrily so. Not how she saw it. So anyway, it has since then grown worse, I think, the division between our two uh, sides. I think it's it's good to to reflect here on the compare and contrast between creating a shelter from shame with your friends in Tea Party, Louisiana, mm-hmm. Lake Charles. Mm-hmm. And then the exercise and celebration of, of shaming. Uh, and could, because you describe um, not just Rush Limbaugh, but, um, but Donald Trump himself as having garnered the support of those who have been cut in line. That's right. And he, ha- he is shaming the line, cutter- line cutters now. And, and that right. kind of protection. So it's more than just a kind of shelter. Now it's a kind of return it's that's right against them for having the audacity to cut in line that's uh excellent point evan yes that's true um it's uh it's giving it back and who re- who are we talking about when we talk about the the people waiting in line they were generally uh white uh blue collar um parents who didn't go to college but had done really quite well um, and came from large families, uh, strong family uh, and community feeling, um, highly religious, most of them. And they were, as I think about it, the elite of the left behind. If we look at 1970 as a kind of point which globalization created winners and losers, we can see that the whole blue-collar class across the country, in Rust Belt states, also in rural areas, created new conditions. You know, um, the 
labor unions were weakened by offshoring. So you had a whole sector of the country that was from then on uh, losing ground economically and as they felt it also culturally that their beliefs, which were more uh, changed more slowly and uh, they felt were uh, disparaged by a national culture. Mm-hmm. So culturally, demographically, it all looked like it was a downward slope. And I think if you look at the rise of right-wing movements around the world, it is this elite of the left behind. It's not those who are abjectly poor at all. They're successful, but in a declining sector. And I think uh, when we're talking about that, throwing shame snowballs back and forth. That's the, it's between uh, folks such as fit that description and others who are in the winning sector of globalization in a way. There is, you know, a kind of a connection between your zip code and your whole political worldview. Yeah. I mean, that, that kind of raises the, the sense of belonging. And so this is an, another point of, of contrast that, um, that we often think that um, it's, it's political beliefs that separate us, but perhaps it's more the sense of a feeling of belonging um, and tribe so that, lo, you know, one's, one's locale really does matter. Yeah. Your location and your and your sort of felt position with people of a similar, um, right. a similar ge- geographical location. Right. And it's not just a geographical location. It's an emotional location. I think we almost live yeah. in a shame scape <laughs> instead of huh. a landscape. And the, wow. the, the people, um, this is where I'm going in my thinking actually very yeah. recently, but draws on this experience. <laughs> of uh, researching for strangers, um, that what if we were to update what's happened between um, 2016 when um, I left the field, although now I've been in touch with, with people I came to know a lot as a film now being done, a documentary on them wonderful. and wonderful. they've come to visit me now so i have a lot of berkeley visitors so it's quite wonderful really is but yeah. what i think nationally has happened is that trump has connected with my friends in louisiana and he said i'm for you you uh, have been in this losing sector i'm going to make you proud again, great again, not just the country, but you, great again. And then he's gone farther and said, I suffer for you. Mm. You know, he's, this has got almost religious overtones. Um, Not only am I from the top, but I feel like I'm at the bottom. I am suffering for you. Yeah. Who does that remind you of? And, Mm -hmm. um, and I am against enemies, you know, Pharisees. They, uh, there are those who are not for you, and I am fighting them. So mm-hmm. join me in my suffering on your behalf. 
And then um, I am sheltering you from the shame they are throwing at you. So here's where I think we are now. Donald Trump, our president, has uh, believes that he has won uh, the 2020 election. He has surrounded himself with this information. He he has shut out uh, other sources of information. Has uh, we can call this a delusion, and he's got his followers joining him in this uh, disbelief that he has lost the election, and they follow him because he is sheltering them from a shame that they have felt unjustly thrust upon them. And Facebook has kind of amplified this. It's it's just a great big shame machine. If you look at, <laughs> you know, friending, defriending, it's this kind of a hostile uh, blanket over the nation through this thing called Facebook. And so... Anyway, followers, it only amplifies uh, the feelings that followers uh, feel as they identify with, with Trump. And then uh, liberals um, see this situation, are appalled by it, and do their shaming. And then they don't see that they are doing their shaming. I was just reading mm. two days ago, uh, Frank Bruni, whom writes for the New York Times, an op-ed. I sure. usually love his work, but what he was saying as well, once um, Biden is our president, then Ivanka Trump's friends in New York uh, won't receive her you know she will be shunned i thought oh no what what are you doing here what yeah. your uh what good purpose is served by this this counter shaming it's and it has i believe a whole backfire effect when i'm i'm now doing new set of interviews in a different place and I'm hearing a lot about this backfire effect. Oh, they're out to get him. That is, uh, the, the lawsuits that are have been uh, filed against Donald Trump, uh, the uh, uh, impeachment hearings, one thing and another. And just the media, the general media presence, which is that's right, often very deeply felt. And you know, you can feel sometimes a little bit more than journalism is, is behind some of the, yes, some of that's that. right. On, on both sides. Uh, so, uh, that is counterproductive. That is, then people are feeling, well, he's being attacked. Our guy, our, our yeah. shelter from shame is being attacked by the shamers. And I think that <laughs> the, Liberals, uh, coastal people, people in cities need to get out of their bubble to get a sense of what 
how their views are received. And yeah. once that has happened, then we can create a, a nation of, of shaming shelters within which, under which, we can begin to talk about our differences. Yeah, I think um, one 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 thing that sort of emerges from this is to is to think about what is the greatest felt need um, for these combatants. Um, like, what drives someone to the point of desiring such protection, um, and what drives someone to the point of being willing to counterattack? Um, and it, it sh I think it demands the question of what will pr stop this vicious cycle? And one of the things that, that we um, discussed briefly was um, to be seen, to be recognized, um, not just recognized, um, but also heard. Um, and, and it seems like this is a very opportune moment to, if not collectively, um, and 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 as you say, with with a good dose of discernment um, about when alarm systems need to be turned off and on, um, an important moment for recognition of yes. the other and recognition across that disagreement. And it, because we need to envision something that is beyond the mere um, uh uh, airing out of our grievances and uh, identifying the, the disagreements, but also finding an opportunity for common ground, finding an opportunity for, um, again, like the peace and the, um, and the collaboration that we need in a right. democracy like ours. Exactly. And to recognize about them, they're better angels and uh, they're, uh, deepest qualities. There's a paradox here that a lot on the left think, oh, I'm for the working man, you know, and yet the biggest blind spot for, uh, I think, uh, the liberal left is social class. I mean, I came to know mm -hmm. people who were pipe fitters. Well, what do you do if you're a, what does a pipe fitter do? One man uh, I wrote about was a pipe fitter, and he was also a, a problem solver. If any a pipe developed a crack, and um, he was the guy to see it. And he could, I heard someone say about Lee, he could fit a pipe within an eighth of an inch. He just knew how one thing fit another. And I thought to myself, I, this was a skill I was uh, blind to, you know. I didn't mm. appreciate it, didn't even know, I didn't yeah. think about that being an important thing to be able to do. And then Lee later took me uh, in his car um, in what at first seemed to be kind of a helter-skelter um, trip around the whole area. And then he said, what I'm showing you is what the pipe system is underneath, <laughs> you know, <laughs> these square three miles. And I thought, oh, he can visualize, you know, yeah. just exactly where all the pipes went. He can see a whole 
huge pattern that uh, I can't. So there's a kind of a a wonder that I came to develop um, about the physical world. And we talk about, you know, um, Main Street and Wall Street, but we don't have a word for who is it that um, did the pipes under Main Street? Who put up the telephone poles? You know, the building of Main Street. Um, and that there is even in uh, our conceptual iconography a missing picture of a lot of the skills that we all depend on, um, not humbly enough. And the same goes for their better angels, for, uh, for who it is they have made sacrifices. Sociologists talk about the difference between locals and cosmopolitans, and there is a class mm. difference. And I think as something of that enters in. But when I followed this woman around, this woman who didn't believe in in uh, government help or welfare for for the poor, or even Head Start, and on this, I had huge differences with her. But when uh, we were in her SUV and she was showing me where she grew up. I could hear a rattle in the back. What's that? Oh, those are walnuts that I've collected for a, a friend who's shut in. She's ill and I'm going to take those to her. Mm. And then in the back of her car were all these um, styrofoam uh, plates and, uh, and uh, cups. Well, I'm doing a fundraiser for the boys in Afghanistan. Hmm. Well, I want to bring the boys in Afghanistan home, but was I empathizing with how it feels to be a 17-year-old in a foreign land hmm. if you've never gotten on a plane before? You know, so I, I think what we need to do within our um, shame shelters is come to appreciate the scope of empathy and the, and the good angels of the people you disagree with, because they're there. It's difficult to reach a deep story across the kind of political disagreements and division that we're experiencing in this country today between locals and cosmopolitans, between left and right, uh, between uh, white and people of color, uh, between the poor and the rich. But then within each, call them tribes, mm-hmm. There's a kind of celebration of their deep story because they they know each other, right? There's a there's a kind of that recognition. There's an awareness, and there's a kind of um, I see you, and I am seen. Mm-hmm. And they have their own stories of how to um, how to serve the other. They have their own stories about what love is. Right. They have their own stories about what service and what justice is. And we need these opportunities. To learn, to learn um, non-judgmentally, non-violently about about those stories. And I wonder if we could close by just talking a little bit about the kind of disposition that that you've learned is required to to get there. Virtues emerge, right? You uh, you you talk about the need to allow yourself a curiosity, 
Mm. You've spoken and your book has been called uh, repeatedly, I think lauded rightly so as a very humble approach to understanding across political division. You know, it's funny, the word humble, because uh, I've heard my book described that way, but it wouldn't be how I would describe it. Mm. I don't think of it as humble. I think of it as um, as curious, <laughs> as eager to get to know yeah. um, my opposite number in a in a different place. I didn't feel like I was putting myself down. I think I felt I was uh, stretching myself out. And uh, it, well, I think in those cases, yeah. the claim of humility is really meant to show your willingness to. I mean, think rightly of yourself, not to put yourself down, but to, but also to hear the other first as, as a level of priority, right. right? To prioritize the other. That's, that's certainly in the, in the, uh, you know, a kind of culturally Christian understanding of humility is, is kind of putting the other first. Right. Um, but also a kind of, um, it's a kind of willingness to regulate your opinions. Yes. Willingness to regulate your judgments. That's right. A willingness to see your own limitations and the limitations of, of perception. Right. And that's where I would have to agree and say, no, it's not about putting, putting yourself down or, or thinking that you're just always wrong, but, but acknowledging either limitation or just lowering our regard for ourselves. And I think that's one of the yeah. beautiful things that your that your study and your narrative, the narrative that you're bringing here, is offering. I think of it as putting oneself uh, in perspective rather than lowering down. Yeah. I think that uh, actually, uh, to put what you're saying, Evan, in a different way, that. Emotion management, that is, uh, thinking about uh, what feelings we evoke and suppress and how we control our feelings, is an act of service to our society and our culture and to other people uh, that just going around freaking out and saying, oh, you know, all these people think we're, are stupid, they don't believe in science, uh, is not uh, uh, there's an absence of um, an act of putting yourself back in perspective, uh, and that's what's so great about um, getting into one of these shame shelters and trying to yeah. really reach out to the other from underneath that shelter. Uh, it that's the big paradox. It makes you bigger. <laughs> to be smaller. <laughs> yeah. That's a beautiful way of putting it. How would you motivate this? Right? I'm thinking again at the level of practicality. Yeah. You found a deep sense of internal motivation, maybe in large part, um, but maybe maybe it's just you. Maybe it's your character. Maybe it's your vocation as a sociologist and a researcher. You, you found yourself able to develop and let that curiosity thrive. But it seems like a precursor and an important internal motivator for getting to a point where we can be appreciating deep stories within a shelter from shame is just interest in doing it. How, how do we overcome that particular obstacle? 
you know, in my own life, uh, I think it, uh, when I was around 12, 13, I got uh, pulled out of my regular life because uh, my uh, dad was a diplomat and uh, plonked into a new place where I was the oddball and didn't speak the the language and looked strange uh, to those around me. Where was this? I, I, oh, this was, uh, we were assigned to go to Tel Aviv, uh, mm. uh, Israel. And uh, I was put in a Scottish mission school there. And uh, huh. <laughs> everything <laughs> about the people I was with and myself was different. And it was the worst experience. I just felt like a fish out of water. But at the same time, it was the best experience. And then two years later, when I came back to the United States, I didn't fit in there either. I was kind of no longer a regular American girl. The world was bigger than this place. And I was smaller than this place. And that, I think, is has determined my journey through life and what occupation felt natural for me. And how going to Louisiana was like going to a foreign place that I needed to understand. So for me, biographically, it kind of makes sense. But I would ask people, if they haven't been displaced in some time in their life, some time where they didn't fit in, and it became important to understand why and to master that, uh, I think a lot of us are have been fish out of water and that turns out to be a great thing because that's going to be your bridge into wanting to get curious about people different from yourself so i mean it's hard it's hard for me not to notice it sounds like you're describing yourself as just as a stranger yes as 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 finding yourself displaced yes and um i mean there there's a long tradition uh in, I mean, in the Jewish tradition and adopted in the Christian tradition, but also hospitality among a variety of religious traditions that say, you know, I mean, in the Jewish way of saying it's like, remember that you two were strangers, exiles, and, and then show hospitality to everyone else um, because of that. And the people that I came to know in the South extended to me extraordinary hospitality. So the feeling of and maybe so are what you, is what you're suggesting that sort of recall that feeling of what it's like to be a stranger. Yes. Identify with it. Yes. Yes. Oh. Don't be frightened of it. Turn it into your, your best realization. Hmm. You know, it's a key to the kingdom <laughs> of understanding. <laughs> yeah. Your, your worst, most painful thing turns out to, to be good uh, and you're seeking healing from that from that emotional place um, turns out to connect you to a lot of people and to make you feel part of a national healing that I think very much needs to be our next step moving forward Arlie I can't thank you enough for sharing these reflections as we move forward um, from a year that has ravaged a lot of this world and a lot of this country. And um, I'm really grateful for your your reflection and your research and looking forward to, to receiving more from you in the future. Well, thank you so much. I've really enjoyed this, Evans. Uh-huh.
Life of the World is a production of the Yale Center for Faith and Culture at Yale Divinity School. This episode featured sociologist Arlie Hochschild. I'm Evan Rosa, and I edited and produced the show. Special thanks to Bill Cross for making this interview possible. For more information, visit us online at faith.yale.edu. We produce a new episode every Saturday, and you can subscribe through any podcast app. We're grateful that you're listening to this podcast. We're 40 episodes and more than six months into the life of our show. And so this week, I'm asking something different. We're passionate about making this work consistently accessible to people who are genuinely concerned about the viability of faith in a world racked with division, contested views about what it means to be human, and what it means to live life well. If you're in a position to support our show financially and are looking for some year-end opportunities, please consider partnering with us. We rely on the generosity of individuals like you to make our work possible. And if you're not, please continue listening and engaging the content. Let us know what you're interested in. We're grateful that you're listening. But if you can give, if you're truly passionate about supporting podcasting that's all about pursuing really living lives that are worthy of our humanity, then consider a gift to the Yale Center for Faith and Culture. Visit faith.yale.edu slash give or find the link in the show notes to make a year-end contribution. It's our joy to bring these shows to you, and we'd invite you to bring that same joy in supporting this work. As always, thanks for listening, and we'll be back with more next week.